You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Levi Roach. He's an associate professor of medieval history, so he's obviously a genius, at the University of Exeter. He is the author of many books, including Kingship and Consent and later Anglo-Saxon England and Alpharad the Unready, which is a, one of my favorite nicknames. And we're going to talk about some great nicknames because we're going to talk about his book and it's called Empires of the Normans. I have it right here in my hand. And uh, since the Normans had considerable Viking consanguinity, uh, the Vikings have the best nicknames in all of history. So we're going to talk about sign Forkbeard and all sorts of folks. Dr. Roach, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, it's got to be difficult not to study medieval history if you live in Britain. Uh, what drew you to that particular time period and to become a professor? Well, it was actually the medieval history partly that drew me to Britain, in fact, that although you might not uh, immediately tell it anymore from my accent, at least if you're mostly accustomed to uh, North American accents. I'm actually originally a Canadian and came to the UK to study medieval history at the age of 18 at university and then stayed here because, as you say, the buildings, the archives, the history is all living and all around us. Uh, and partly as a result, I think there's a slightly more uh, of vibrant interest in it in the wider public, simply because it's more immediate. You look out your window and you can see medieval ruins in the town I live in. We have a castle. Um, and so there's that strong sense of uh, uh, the legacy of the Middle Ages and of people like the Normans who went all around Europe building castles. We're going to talk a lot about the Normans. I finished your book actually about an hour and a half ago. 
So a lot of it is fresh into my mind. Uh, we have about an hour here. Uh, you know, one of the things you just mentioned something that brought to mind what what people like uh, Dr. Tracy Borman and uh, Dr. Nicola Talos have, have told us on the podcast, and that is when they do tours or do history weekends, that there is a significant American presence in these in these events, and that Americans tend to be very knowledgeable. I think Nicola said more knowledgeable, maybe that's an exaggeration, uh, than Brits about their own sort of history. Do you find that? You just mentioned being a Canadian and falling in love. Uh, is that something you've experienced? I think it very much varies, but certainly it would be the case that a significant number of Americans you get coming to visit a place like the UK because they've chosen to come here on holiday rather than somewhere else, rather than going to Hawaii or something like that, or at least alongside that. So it normally already indicates a degree of interest. And so certainly you do get a significant number of people who are coming here precisely because in terms of the history and things, it offers something. You know, the, the UK has some nice landscape, but nothing really to compare with you know, what the U.S. has to offer there. But what it has instead is uh, that kind of story of a built environment and of that really long-term visible human history uh, that you can see when you walk through the streets of London or things like that. So I think you do get a significant number of people who are drawn here because that's something they like and are interested in or because it's a more sort of uh, notable change from home, which is obviously what we're often looking for when we want to go on holiday. Do you have a favorite castle or medieval site? Possibly Montgomery Castle, uh, which is just inside Wales. It's in the Welsh yeah, marches, mentioned in but your really, book. you can't go wrong. I think yeah. exactly, you can't go wrong with any castle. Uh, is the short answer. <laughs> uh, but I think of all the castles, Welsh castles have to be the best because Wales has such a density of castles, partly due to its history and uh, uh, the large number of conflicts over control of Wales. Um, but it's combined then. It's, it combines that with the Welsh landscape, which itself is very hilly and mountainous. And so you get these castles with amazing views over valleys and like. And so Montgomery Castle itself sits like a just beautiful medieval early modern town. You can see over the valleys. Um, the, the modern castle you can see and the one that I'm singing the praise of is actually not the one I talk about in the book. That's that's its precursor, which is a mile or two further north um, and now is just a, a rather nondescript uh, hill. I, I drove up to there when I was last in Montgomery, tried uh, about a year and a half ago, tried to go visit it. And you can't even climb up it. it. You can just kind of drive in a circle around it. So that was a little bit disappointing. But the later medieval one, the replacement one in, in the modern town is, is absolutely stunning. I've not been to Wales and definitely want to go. And then a lot of those castles were built by Longshanks, correct, after he conquered Wales in the 13th century? Yeah, so probably the most famous ones, uh, things like Conwy and things like that, Carnarvon, are part of that attempt to subdue the north, particularly northwest of Wales, which was the kind of last bastions of resistance. Uh, but if you go through Wales, you'll see there's actually castles there from just after the Norman Conquest, so 11th century right up to then. So you also have um, uh, other ones that uh, tell a much earlier history or other ones that have been built on and have those different layers. So, yes, you've got a, a final burst of building with Longshanks, but already before he conquers the last Wales, Wales has the highest density of castles anywhere in the British Isles. And that is because it's been this kind of contested territory that very soon after the Normans conquer England. They, they start encroaching into Wales, but it's much harder to conquer because of the landscape and actually because politics is much more fragmented. Wales isn't a unified kingdom, so you can't kind of knock it out and conquer them. 
as a whole like England, uh, like they can with England. So that leads to a couple of hundred years of very slow piecemeal conquest. And it's by no means lineal. It's not that the Normans and the, are always on the front foot. Sometimes they're on the back foot. So you have this kind of really, really dense concentration of fortification there that's not like anything you see anywhere else in the British Isles. Let's stay with this for just a minute before we get to your book, because most people are halfway kind of know a little bit about Edward I, better known as Longshanks, because of his prominence in the movie Braveheart. And his son, who would become Edward II, I believe he, who's played rather effeminately, according to uh, some historical accounts, uh, he, his son, who eventually becomes Edward II, I believe is the first Prince of Wales. Yes. And so that's out of that tradition. And it's out of Edward's desire to subdue Wales with the castle, but then also administratively, is that he's making his son and heir prince there as experience. Um, but it also then becomes this important constitutional rule that, of course, uh, uh, we now probably know is an honorific just being next in line to succession to the English throne. But as you say, it, it comes out of actually a very particular moment where it's instead putting a safe pair of hands, hopefully training up a son uh, in the duties of kingship in the face of uh, a, a very real and still live, uh, a lively Welsh opposition that will kind of uh, resurface at, uh, at the slightest opportunity. One of the questions I like to ask historians, and usually I wait towards the end, but we're going to ask it now since I brought it up. But um, do you have a favorite history movie? And is it difficult to watch movies about history because they so often take so much license that it's like it becomes nonsensical to someone like you. Uh, Susanna Lipscomb said that, that it's, she loves history movies, but it's really hard for her to watch ones in the Tudor period because they're so made up. Yeah, I think it's a bit harder when it's near your own field. So long as you're able to a certain extent to suspend that kind of professional distance, I think you can still quite enjoy them. And certainly there are lots that are set in my period that you can really quite enjoy without you know worrying about critiquing them all the way. But I think of a favorite movie set in the middle ages probably be a bit of an old one but the lion in winter which is just mm. a great drama uh, you may well know set in henry ii's reign but also wonderfully evocative it's not super accurate historically but it, i think what it is very accurate about is it's evoking these family conflicts and dynamics for those who haven't watched it it's all about interfamily fighting amongst uh, uh, uh henry ii and his sons uh, and in terms of that it wonderfully evokes Era. So that would probably be my, my number one. My number two, and the other one I almost said initially there, um, would be um, The Name of the Rose with Sean Connery. Um, because I think that's actually a really nice, I think it's quite a good version. I, I also very much like the book. And Umberto Eco, of course, you know, great novelist, but was a medievalist by training and art historian. So it also has real niche little bits that if you really know the period, particularly in the book, but also some bits in the film that actually really work in terms of uh, things he's talking about, how medieval libraries are working and some of the texts in there are very, very genuine ones. So uh, there's there's something in there for both the general audience and for a specialist audience. So that, that, that would be my kind of close second. The Lion in Winter is brilliant. If you if you can stand to listen to Peter O'Toole scream for two plus hours straight yelling at every he yells at everybody in the movie, like everybody. Um, my favorite is. What'd you say? Well, well, I was going to say, to which, to be honest, I think it's probably what Henry II did much of the time <laughs> around his family. <laughs> My favorite is Beckett. Ah, 
another classic. That uh, we, we also have a copy of that. That, 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 that of I tend to think of those two together, and I think they're they're both very very good. Uh, we're talking with Professor Levi Roach. He is kind enough to Zoom from Great Britain to talk about his book. It is called Empires of the Normans. So let's get started. We, I took us down a different path, so forgive me, Dr. Roach. Um, who are the Normans? Where did they come from? And why are they important? So the short answer is in origin, the Normans are not Normans at all. They are Vikings, or rather Northmen. That's where the name Norman comes from. It's something we can easily forget about in English because we've created these nice, convenient two different ones. Normans are kind of northern French, based in northern France. And we we speak of them as a force who are kind of Francophone, French-speaking and conquering large parts of Europe. And we speak of Northmen, or rather more often Vikings is the term we use, but we sometimes say Northmen too, um, at least scholars do. Um, and we indicate something completely different by that. But the terms are identical in the Middle Ages when they're using these terms. And they remain identical, in fact, in modern French and German, where the terms for Norman, Norma uh, and Normanen, can also mean Northmen and be used for Vikings. So I think there's a valence to the term that people would immediately have understood in the Middle Ages that's lost on us. So they are in origin a group of kind of Viking freebooters who are doing what Vikings do best. They're roaming around Europe and pillaging and then trading and uh, making a quick dime wherever they can and taking advantage of local political divisions. And so they're doing this uh, around Europe. And they're part of, and particularly the group that end up becoming the Normans, are part of this very, very large army that contemporaries call the Great Viking Army that, first of all, wreaks havoc in England, conquers much of England until it's defeated by Alfred the Great. Then when it's defeated in England, goes to France uh, and sails south and then starts being real problems um, in France thereafter. And at least portions of that army seem to almost never leave France. Uh, and one particular portion stays in the upper reaches of the Seine River that, that travels from the coast, northern French coast, all the way up to Paris and beyond. One of those ones stays up in the northern reach and reaches of the Seine uh, near what is now modern Normandy and basically set up camp there. Uh, seemingly probably for quite a few years on end. We don't know the details as well as we'd like. But eventually, the French monarch at the time, and this is a period when uh, a royal power is uh, rapidly weakening and is atrophying in France. That's partly why the Vikings have rocked up. Royal power is getting stronger in England, weaker in France. So let's, let's move over to there. And so what he does and hits on as a solution is he offers this group significant parts of territory in northern France to hold as their own. Um, but under his authority, under the agreement that they'll then fight for him. And it's a kind of classic case of setting a thief to catch a thief. Um, he's not the first king to have done this. This is a common strategy with Vikings. Pay them off with a bit of your land. Normally give them something coastal, near where the Vikings would otherwise want to, to attack. And new Viking groups will either have to fight them uh, or will choose to join and settle them. Uh, um, and so that, that's where we get a settlement of uh, a Northmen based in France. Uh, and out of that then slowly grows a polity. And what happens with this group particularly is where other groups have kind of failed, they actually succeed in creating presence there. And so after kind of two, three generations, they are well established. They're still calling themselves Northmen, Vikings, but they're speaking French uh, and they're becoming kind of regional, a major regional power. And indeed, they become one of the biggest powers in northern France. For the podcast listener who's trying to visualize this, uh, when you say France, we're not talking about the modern construction. Talk a little bit, please, about the geography of France at this time. And you mentioned the king. The king, is the king a direct descendant of Charlemagne? 
Yes, so the king still is a direct descendant of Charlemagne, though there have been other people vying for the kingship. That's one of the problems they have, is in fact, uh, there's a rival dynasty that eventually becomes then the next French dynasty, the Titians. So there are two dynasties in play, but that king is uh, descended from Charlemagne's so-called Carolingian, and most of the monarchs still are. But what's happened is, although kind of on paper, if you draw a map of medieval France's period, it will be not that far off the size of modern France. But if you're looking at effective royal control, we're talking about something much, much smaller. So not south of the Loire River, which is actually quite far up modern France, but not really any of what is modern southern France. Significant chunks of southwestern and western France are not part of this. So no, no Aquitaine, really. Uh, no Provence, areas like that. Uh, no Languedoc. Um, we're thinking of royal power really being concentrated um, on Paris and then east of that. So between the rivers uh, Seine and kind of the, the Moselle, so between kind of Paris uh, and countries and Germany uh, these days is where we're thinking of royal power being strongest. And the area where they actually set up the Normans is in one of these areas where royal power is slightly more vital still and more alive because the king can give it away at all. But also one of those areas that's on the very fringe where he still has uh, quite active control. So that's why he's choosing that. And indeed, the king's main rival, um, who is a chap called Robert of Neustria, who is of this rival dynasty, whose brother has actually been monarch previously, who's been the previous king. Um, the territory is part of his lands. So in fact, he's giving away a chunk of territory from his main competitor, the leading magnate who otherwise would like to be king. So. Uh, he's also kind of playing a bit of internal politics there, and it's telling that in for the rest of his reign, this is the chap called Charles the Simple. Um, uh, it is a contemporary term, probably because he was thought to be a bit uh, uh, weak. <laughs> but um, he's named after Charlemagne. Charlemagne's name, of course, in the Middle Ages is just Charles, Charles the Great. Um, so he's named after Charlemagne, and he's giving away this territory that otherwise is territory of one of his rivals. And indeed, in later years, the Normans, the Northmen, support him routinely against them in terms of internal struggles. And you made the point, I think, in your book that one of the reasons they put the Northmen on the coast was to keep other Norsemen. <laughs> What's the, it's like you're the you're the advance guard in case anybody else comes over and tries to. Exactly. You know how to defend best against really. And in terms of this, it, it, it's, it's a fairly common dynamic. Uh, the, as I say, the thief to catch a thief or poachers into gameskeepers. These are the people who know the Viking tricks of the trade best. And there is that kind of possibility as well that they'll just recruit at least some of the groups that might otherwise wish to pillage the territory will instead choose to settle there with them. Or, as you say, will go elsewhere because they know there's an effective defense. Um, but either way, that's certainly one of the things that's in his mind. And indeed, although the area that becomes Normandy hasn't been used for these purposes, previous monarchs have regularly given out parts of the Low Country in precisely this fashion. Again, the same logic that most of these groups are coming over from Denmark. That's one of the first bits of kind of uh, French territory uh, that you're likely to strike. So give away land that you're not really able to control super well anyway, and hope that with this you've won a powerful friend and ally. And Charlemagne, I mean, it's a little bit before the, the period of your book per se, but he died in 814, I think. Yes, that's correct. And, and he he dealt with the Vikings in a way that's kind of when I was in in college and graduate school was kind of surprising. You kind of think a warrior like that would relish the fight, but he kind of took a a different approach to dealing with the Vikings, one that you just kind of mentioned a few minutes ago. 
Yeah, so there's hints of this already in Charlemagne's very latest years, is, is just when uh, uh, the Vikings are starting to become a real threat. And we see it in particular under Charlemagne's son and heir, Louis the Pious, is the first person we have directly recorded giving away land uh, and doing these kinds of things and baptizing these groups. And that's the other key thing that's part of the deal almost always. And it is also the case of Normandy is you give them territory, you baptize them, you normally stand as their baptismal sponsor, i.e. you become their godfather as a d- designed to create a close bond, but also that's a hierarchical relationship. So it's a reinforcing kind of who is top dog here. And you try to use that to bind them into your kind of political systems. Now, of course, success in this is hugely variable. And plenty of groups go, go, go back to their pagan ways. They so-called apostatize. Uh, but also plenty of groups do stick with it. And particularly by the time we're getting to the settlement of Normandy, this is probably happening around 9-11. We're talking about uh, uh, a Scandinavian world that has been in regular contact with the rest of Europe for over 100 years. Viking attacks have been going on for over 100 years. So they actually know quite a bit about Christianity. Significant minorities in Scandinavia are already Christian. And so in the case of Normandy, uh, it actually seems to be relatively successful. Now, our sources aren't as rich as they could be. I'm sure there were plenty of complications along the way. But it actually seems to be something that at least the, the, the Viking leaders want to do because they want to settle on French territory. That's financially in their interest. It's politically in their interest. They want to integrate with the surrounding aristocracy because they want to marry into it mm. and tap into the wealth locally. So uh, there is a significant impetus towards Christianizing, towards baptism, at least from a top-down level, and adopting local forms. And so the, the first Viking settler is called Rollo, which it comes from this, uh, the Old Norse name of Hrolfer, good Viking name, but his son's name is William which is a very good French name. Uh, and that's almost certainly a signal, if you will. Uh, and indeed, he's said to have also been more born from a Christian mother. So the, the, he is very much actively doing so. And one imagines as well that the, the band he settles with, there may well have been some you know, women and children with them or who came over to join their husband. But it, they're going to have been more male than female. Uh, that's the nature of these kinds of groups. So they're also going to have fairly quickly intermarried and started adopting some of the local cultural forms. You mentioned the the Hugh Capet of the Capetians earlier. I, this is apropos of nothing, but I always chuckle when I read that French King Louis the Sixteenth was was his death certificate said Louis Capet. Like, what a snotty thing to do to a poor guy! You're already cutting his head off. And anyway, I, I just the, the, the Capetians last longer only because of that. Uh, what made? Well, the, yes. What, no. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. No, oh, no, the, the Capetians are the, the the most successful medieval dynasty through the through the Bourbon side branch. They they lost to the French Revolution. It's just like I don't know. For some reason, it seems insulting, but I guess it isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we don't tend to think of monarch surnames really very often. You know, certainly not in this country where you've got the monarchy. Uh, but of course, technically, they all have surnames that are their houses, and of course, sometimes they're changed to things like Windsor to make them yeah. a bit more. George to a British audience during a war with war. <laughs> yeah George V he's like I don't think Sax Coburg and Gotha I think was the uh, name yeah uh, before. that suddenly doesn't sound so good when you're sending the boys out to fight the Hun <laughs> um, what made the the Normandy Northmen if I may use that phrase what made them different or were they not different because the, the the Vikings are are everywhere, and there's your book. You know they're in they're in Italy, and they're in Scotland, and they're in Ireland, and they're in France, and they're 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 kind of everywhere. They're in um, Byzantium or Constantinople, I guess we should say. Uh, what made it 
What made them different? So I think they were different by degree rather than by nature um, from their surround, the, those around them in France. So the key thing to note is this is a period, um, Rob Bartlett's written about this very well in an excellent book called the, the, um, uh, about the Europeanization of Europe, the making of Europe that he, he published in the 90s. But this is a period when we see Europe kind of as we now know it forming culturally. So uh, at around kind of 950, they would argue, and I think is very convincing on this, if you looked at Europe, you'd see massively different cultural forms, uh, different expectations if you were in England, in France, in Germany, in Southern Italy, and so on. By about 1350, we suddenly have a shared culture of knights, castles, and so on. People might speak different languages. You could have picked up a knight or uh, an aristocrat or a peasant from one region, put them in the other, and they'd have understood how things operate. Fundamentally would have kind of had a, a shared cultural understanding. And his central argument is this is created in these years largely by expansion from a kind of core towards a periphery. And that core is modern France and Germany. So we are seeing, uh, in, in the period I cover in the book, significant settlement and conquest, not only by Normans, but by lots of other groups of people who are French and Germans. So, for example, the Crusades, the Normans are participants, but they're not alone there. Um, uh, uh, we're seeing significant conquests uh, 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 in Spain against uh, Islamic al-Andalus. So it's part of a wider phenomenon, but still, even within this water, wider process, the Normans do stand out at the forefront. They're doing it slightly earlier than most other people. They are, I think, uh, uh, more involved in terms of sheer numbers than you'd expect just by population. And I think a significant part of this actually goes back to their Viking heritage, not in a sense that they were kind of you know, genetically predisposed to do this because that's what Vikings do. Um, uh, we, we, we've gone a long way away from those kinds of uh, old-fashioned kind of uh, ethnic, almost racial stereotypes about these kinds of groups. But I think what matters actually is that they're keenly aware of their own history, that the name Norman means Northman. They have an origin legend, a very powerful one of how they came, took this land, became Christian, became the leading power. And of course, they're a huge success story. Um, uh, in the end, both in France and then thereafter. And so I think this gives them a confidence, particularly in the very early years of this expansion of the kind of uh, early 11th, early to mid 11th century, that not necessarily all other European groups would. So William the Conqueror, famously, he's a highly successful Duke uh, uh, of Normandy. He's one of the leading powers in Northern France, but there are other individuals like him in the years before him and after him. None of the others would have thought, I know, I'll raise an army and go over and conquer England. The only people who've done that recently are, of course, Vikings. But William knows their kindred, and William knows his own ancestors have come and conquered large parts of northern France. So I think William's attitude is much more, if they can do it, so can I. I'll rise to the challenge. And once this kind of expansion and colonialism gets going, there's a highly competitive element to it, just as there was much later in, say, the 19th century with things like the scramble for Africa or things like that. There is this dynamic of wanting to one-up one another of these various groups. And so while William is consolidating his power in northern France and then conquering England, different Norman groups are conquering southern Italy. And indeed, one of our, so our key sources for William's reign, a writer called William of Malmesbury, says that he was inspired to conquer England because he said it would be a matter of great shame if a man of lower birth, Robert Giscard, who's busy conquering southern Italy, were to achieve more than me. And so there, there is very much, he's keenly aware of uh, what this upstart, this man of really lower nobility, 
is achieving in southern Italy, I as Duke must achieve more. And so I think there's that there is that kind of then dynamic. As soon as it gets going, there's first of all this awareness that our ancestors did this. They traveled far away from home across seas and won great riches to find out us. And then added to that, then they start doing it. And once they start being successful, once you've seen they're conquering southern Italy, well, why can't we conquer England? Once we've conquered England, why don't we join the first crusade and go take the Holy Land? Why don't we travel over to Ireland? Of course we can do it. So it becomes this huge confidence at times bordering on and someone's going over into overconfidence. But it's what allows them to achieve these kinds of things uh, that other other groups, I think, wouldn't have contemplated or started contemplating once they saw the Normans doing it. You mentioned that then those points come out really, really strongly in your book. But the other thing I, I struck as I was reading it, I'm I actually took a class, an entire semester class on the Vikings in graduate school by my wonderful, wonderful thesis director, uh, Professor Ken Cutler, whose uh, Ph.D. is about the House of Godwinson. And so uh, he talked a lot about this. But the assimilation part, is there a pattern of assimilation when it comes to raiders who uh, may have started out and just looking for booty for lack of a better term and for, you know, women and spoils and they decide to stay. So, so the Vikings doing it, how much different is that than the Ostrogoths doing it? How much different is that than other ethnicities throughout history? I think there's a very significant similarity that, that, that we see it throughout history. The groups conquer other regions Um uh, and precisely what happens thereafter will vary, but one common scenario, particularly if it's an area where the incomers are a minority and an area that's culturally uh, 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 well-established and economically wealthy, you've got a very good chance that your choice is going to be to assimilate, uh, at least partially so. That's what we see in Northern England, what becomes later known as the Dane Law. There becomes an awareness of kind of uh, Viking heritage still in significant parts of it. Uh, but in practice, people who are Vikings end up becoming English, as it were, that, you know, when William the Conqueror invades England, the people living in northern England do not think of themselves as Danes, even though some of them are of, of good Danish stock. They see themselves as English and as kinsmen of, of people elsewhere. And certainly that is the trend we see with the Normans outside of Normandy itself, interestingly enough, where they, they, they create this new polity. I think that is largely because this is that moment where royal power is fracturing in France and the regional identities are becoming more important. So we see similar identities being cultivated in places like Aquitaine, in Anjou, and things like that. They're able to kind of tap into a moment in that sense uh, and create an identity that therefore takes root. But beyond there, the direction of travel tends to be the Normans are a, mi a minority group everywhere they go. Um, and sooner or later, they start identifying with uh, the local cultures uh, 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 and absorb into them. So in England, by certainly the end of the 12th century, the aristocracy sees itself very much as English, but ironically, would talk about how English they were in French because of the <laughs> Norman. So there are, you know, we can see as modern scholars and you know, and, and and simply as modern readers, we can see the Norman legacy everywhere. But they wouldn't consider themselves Normans anymore because Normans are the ones who live in Normandy and they speak slightly differently from us and so on. So you you start getting this distinction kind of uh, uh, growing there. Um, and we see these processes even quicker in places like southern Italy, where they're a, a, an even smaller group um, and where they adapt pretty closely. Where we don't see it is more places like Wales and Ireland, where there's a starker cultural difference uh, and where they're coming in 
rather more chauvinistically, perhaps one might say, where their attitudes are much more akin to those we see of kind of 19th century European empires of seeing themselves as culturally superior to the locals, the natives, and uh, and choosing to try to stay as different as they can. You know, this brings to mind what I should have mentioned as my favorite movie concerning the medieval period. And of course, that's The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Claude Rains and Sir Basil Rathbone and the recently deceased Olivia de Havilland, who actually is Norman. Her genealogy is Norman. Uh, what comes through in that movie is the bifurcation between the Anglo-Saxons or the Saxons and the Normans. Uh, now, how, how how accurate that is, I'm going to ask you. Was there this sort of separate society where you had, you know, the 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 exalted and then the conquered, specifically in, the in England? In the short term, yes. So we see it to varying degrees in different places. We don't see it much in Norman conquests in Italy. There, there are a really small minority. They never even become the complete aristocracy. So they work with the local powers that be from from the start. And they're dealing with local political systems that are kind of their, they see very much as their equals. But we do see it in England initially. Um, and that is because the Normans are coming over uh, and their claim to the English throne partly is as a claim that Harold Godwinson has been a usurper. That Edward the Confessor has promised the throne to William. He probably didn't actually, but he may have considered doing so. Certainly he would have probably preferred William to Harold, I suspect. Um, and certainly he liked Normans very, very much for his own particular reasons. Um, but William's entire claim to England is predicated upon the fact that the English have betrayed their rightful lord, i.e. him, by giving the crown to Harold. Harold is a usurper, an unking, um, uh, is unworthy of any kind of title. And by supporting him, the English have deserved conquest. Um, uh, and this is also then played out with... Uh, religious justifications as well. There's an undertone of holy war to it. He points out that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time uh, is somebody who the Pope has been trying to get rid of, who's been, you know, uh, inappropriately appointed in terms of church regulations. And so all of this comes together nicely for William that he can suggest that something's deeply rotten in the state of England, and I'm the kind of uh, broom that's going to come sweep it clean. Uh, uh, I'm here to bring in the clean slate and so on. So that does encourage him to arrive and wish to make distinctions and wish to clear things out. And the more the English resist him, the worse that gets. And so it starts off, there's always going to be quite a bit of change with William. Um, but the English also bitterly resist him in the early years. And so what ends up happening is the entire aristocracy, almost entirely, is replaced. Yeah. The British Isles have never before or since seen as complete a replacement of the ruling elite. Uh, it's, you know, uh, as close to 100% as you're ever going to get in terms of this. And because of that, then you have a very stark distinction. The Normans who've come in are all wealthier than the local Anglo-Saxons. And the local Anglo-Saxons have all lost out. The only question is by how much and by degree. Uh, and something quite similar happens within the church. By the time William dies, pretty much all the bishops are, if not Norman, French, German, they're continental. So that does lead to a part where there's quite a bit of distinction and early legal treatises and documents talk about there being different laws at times and different penalties, harsher ones, if you attack somebody who is Norman or French, um, and so on that are designed to kind of help shore up this uh, uh, colonial elite we might we might now use as a, a term thinking in terms of, you know, uh, modern history. But what happens is within about 
three generations or so, that starts breaking down, and it starts breaking down ever more so. Um, and the reasons behind that are probably partly that there is some elements of the English elite that cling on, not large numbers. There does end up being contact, some elements of intermarriage. But you also have the fact that England still is fundamentally very wealthy and was, in terms of other kinds of forms, economically, culturally, not so very different from Norman, not in any way they would have necessarily seen obviously inferior. So although there's been this rhetoric of the English are doing everything wrong, we need to kind of replace them and arrange things better. There was also what there was, and for example, state structures, although the people running the show change almost entirely, the way they run it doesn't change actually that because it actually is a very centralized, well-run kingdom, more centralized in some respects than Normandy. So all of those forms, I think, encourage an acculturation and enable them to do so. That combined with the fact that the rulers are often ruling Normandy as well, but you start then getting the drift between the Normans of Normandy and the Normans of England, a little bit like you get famously with, you know, America and England, <laughs> of what were originally groups that identified together are suddenly divided by a common language and a common culture where they may be more like one another than they are like the Welsh. But because they're actually quite similar, the differences also become quite important. Mm -hmm. And so people start putting down roots and slowly but steadily, they start identifying as English. What does keep though for a very long time as a distinction is a class distinction that is at least partially linguistically based. So although we get to a point after not too, too long where the ruling elite consider themselves English and Englishmen, uh, they remain francophone as their native language most would then be speak, able to speak english too but they remain native language francophone and that that remains a very strong legacy for a long period of time as a kind of class marker and a mark of distinction is that you're you know you're a french speaking english not an english speaking <laughs> you're listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central indiana garmon construction Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery. Speaking of a good Scottish name, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Levi Roach. He is Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter. He has written a terrific book, which I said earlier, I literally finished about an hour and a half ago. It's called Empires of the Normans. Uh, Dr. Roach, if you could hang out for a weekend with any uh, figure you detail, any person you detail in your book, who would that be? I'd be tempted to say Bohemond of Antioch. I'm not sure I'd want to spend much more than a weekend with him. I think he'd be a huge <laughs> egomaniac and probably quite rapidly get on your nerves. But it would be quite something to see somebody who was a legend in his own lifetime. So uh, we might hear a little bit more at least in the Anglophone world of William the Conqueror and his conquest. But Bohemond is the eldest son, who for various reasons doesn't become the main heir, but of Robert Guiscard, who is this uh, uh, kind of equivalent to William Conqueror, who's busy conquering southern Italy. And Bohemond joins the First Crusade, helps it, is one of its most successful leaders. Then after they take Antioch, he decides, I've kind of had enough of this, tell you what, you guys keep on, have fun in Jerusalem. I'm staying here. I want Antioch. <laughs> he then later on in life goes back and goes on a recruiting run in France using his reputation won in the Crusades um, uh, to help his efforts. He marries into the French royal family, gets up a large force, and then he heads off to fight 
uh, the Byzantines in Constantinople rather than actually in the Holy Land. Um, because ultimately he he wants to kind of, you know, he's the kind of person who I think is probably deeply amoral. I, was, I don't think necessarily immoral, but Bohemond's interested in what's best for Bohemond and will do whatever necessary to get, get ahead. Um, but as a result of this, he is this kind of person who had a major, major historical impact and already contemporaries write about him uh, in kind of a superlative terms or if there is opponents with kind of this grudging respect because here was somebody who you might not have liked, you couldn't trust, but you had to reckon with. You mentioned William the Conqueror. Uh, was he known as William the Conqueror within his own lifetime? I don't believe quite as early as that, but fairly soon thereafter. So it does become a moniker that is attributed to him fairly swiftly because the conquest is such an epochal moment, particularly for those Normans that come over with him and settle in England. Now, that is the kind of birth point of a tradition. It is seen for many as a kind of important starting point, although he emphasizes that he's Edward the Confessor's heir. There's a very real awareness that actually uh, the conquest is a new start, and it's recorded most famously in Doomsday Book, where where he has recorded who holds all of the land in England. It was probably intended partly as kind of uh, an exercise in kind of tax assessments and useful things for governments to have, but it's also reflecting the huge upheaval because who's holding the land when he has that done in 1086 is in almost all cases different than who held it in 1066. Um, so there has been this very very rapid change. And there's this kind of awareness that we came over with William, we won these lands uh, and kind of created uh, a, a new future for ourselves here. And indeed, uh, famously, the later Earl William de Warren, who's a descendant of one of the uh, leaders of, of William's expedition, um, uh, William de Warren later, when they're um, in the 13th century doing these quo warranto um, proceedings where they're asking people basically, what is your warrant? I, what's your evidence that you hold your land? He famously is reported to have taken out an old rusty sword and said, this is the sword with which my ancestors came over and, you know, fought with the conqueror. This is my warrant. You let's, know, let's talk about the conqueror for just, let me talk about the conqueror for just a second. Um, you know, we all, all of us, I mean, you're obviously a scholar and those of us like me who are, are readers, we, we can all fall in the trap of inevitability. But it's it's certainly not inevitable that William wins the Battle of Hastings, October 14th, 1066. Tell us about that invasion and, and why William ended up winning. And was it in any way a surprise? I think it probably was a bit of a surprise. So it's hard, as you say, that it's always hard to second guess these things as a story, but it's important for us to pose these questions because sometimes unexpected things happen historically and they then leave a powerful legacy and we then tend to treat them as what we should anticipate happening and treating them as a kind of inevitable build-up. Now, England has been conquered before William comes over and does it. So King Canute famously did this from Denmark and that's almost certainly William's model. So England is a, an eminently conquerable kingdom. doesn't mean it's easy, but because it's quite centralized, this is something I, I was mentioning to you briefly earlier, it means that if you can defeat the powers that be there, you can then take over a state structure kind of wholesale um, in, in a way you can't in parts of Europe, which are actually less centralized. Uh, so sometimes being kind of centralized and powerful uh, can be a, a double-edged sword here. 
So there's always that element in it. And so when William decides to make his bid for the English throne, it is a very credible. But it's not necessarily any more credible than that of Harold Godwinson. Indeed, if you were a betting man at the start of the year, your money would probably have been on Harold, who is already the leading earl in England, is well established, has lots of friends and associates in England. Um, and of course, you also have Harold Hardrada, the um, king of Norway, the, the great Viking leader, also claims as a kind of uh, uh, heir of Canute, English throne. And again, his um, uh, candidacy is just as credible as Williams, but not necessarily any more so. It's just that he's defeated. Um, and William is successful that conditions it. To come on to your second part then is to, you know, how is he successful or how contingent is this? Key things that end up helping him that year um, are crucially that Harold Hardrada invades first and at a very similar time. If one of them invades months before the other, they're potentially picked off one by one. But instead what actually happens is Harold Hardrada arrives Harold Godwinson, who's claimed the English throne, marches north and fights uh, a major battle, wins a, a complete and outright victory, but a hard-fought victory as well. And only moments after that, still in the north, still in his camp, he hears about Williams landing in the south and southeast of England and has to immediately then march south. Now, he almost certainly doesn't march his whole army south with him. He's almost certainly has two different main forces he fights with, but it does mean he's not on the ground, not ready, not anywhere near where William is to go and face him. And actually earlier that summer, Willie, he, he knew William had raised an army. Harold had an army on the south coast of England just waiting for William. But what happens is bad weather means William can't cross. And again, William's annoyed at the time. In the long run, it helps him because it means eventually Harold disbands that army. Then he heads north with a different army and raises a different army. Then he has to come south. So he's on the back foot from the very start in terms of this. And none of that was due to William's own strategy. William's great success in the heart of that summer is keeping his army together um, logistically. That is probably the, the toughest thing he did in that entire year, not, not the Battle of Hastings. That's kind of thing that's perhaps almost miraculous under medieval circumstances, but he's not done anything clever strategically. It's all been good luck, things other people have done, things the weather has done. But as a result of this, he arrives in England with Southeast open to him, starts ravaging, setting himself up, and starts trying to lure Harold into battle. And here we come into the other key kind of part of the equation, is Harold, perhaps buoyed by his recent success, he's just defeated Harald Hardrada, a very experienced warrior, king of Norway, He's just won this stunning victory, partly by surprise, arriving quicker than Harold Hardrada had anticipated. And he may well be trying to do the same with William the Conqueror. And, and it just goes wrong because William's scouts are good enough to warn him. Um, but whatever the reasons, Harold decides, yeah, I'm going to offer William battle. He doesn't actually necessarily have to. Time is on his side. As you say, this is 14th October. The campaigning months are pretty much at an end. Weather in England, I can assure you, is getting worse at that time of year. It famously rains a lot here. It is not good for campaigning. Um, so he could potentially play for time. And arguably, that is his great strategic blunder. Now, of course, had he won the battle, and it was very close on battle, we'd be saying the reverse. We'd be saying it was a brilliant strategy, catch him off guard, and he did it by the skin of his teeth. But, but it doesn't quite work, as I say, whether it's the William scouts are too good, whether that he's been overconfident. He decides to offer battle, and that's what William really wants because William needs battle. He needs to win or lose. He cannot keep an army of about 8,000 men in hostile territory through the winter. It's been hard enough for him to do so in friendly territory 
in Normandy and northern France through the summer. There's no way he's going to survive this. So he needs to roll the dice. He knows it's high risk. Battle is high risk in the Middle Ages. And William himself rarely goes for decisive battles otherwise in his early, in, at other points in his career. It's something that actually medieval monarchs rulers tended not to go for because they were too risky unless they were really confident they could win or unless they were playing a high-risk strategy, which was what William was. So William went into this knowing that it was perhaps 50-50. May have been a bit more confident than that, but he would have known there was a very good chance he'd lose. But that winning a decisive battle was the only way he was going to conquer England. And, and he knew that even before he invaded England. It, it, the fact that it's in October means it's even more important. But even if it's June or July, he probably at some point needs to force a battle. That's probably always what he's aiming to do in this case. Once he's done so, once he has England, he then actually avoids pitch battles thereafter against rebels and besieges them instead and he harries them and so on. But so that's his fundamental strategy is to force battle. Will Harold takes the bait uh, and then the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, we, we could go through the, the battle blow by blow, but it, it is a very close-run battle. But in the end, William comes out on top. His gamble pays off. Uh, one of the things, one of the people, I should say, one of the people you you detail in your book is someone I didn't forget about, but someone who I hadn't read about in a while. And it was probably, oh, 10 years ago or so, I read a book called Queen Emma and the Vikings. It's by a lady named Harriet O'Brien. Power, love, and greed in 11th century England. And Queen Emma, and I'd like you please to talk a little bit about her role in this time period. She comes off as about one of the most ballsy women in all of history and just a fighter, a fighter for her family, for her kids, for herself. How remarkable was, in your mind, Queen Emma, or was she not? Oh, I think absolutely so. Absolutely remarkable. And indeed, Queen Emma is one of these figures without whom we have no Norman conquest. And as you say, she's probably one of these players who's less often mentioned or or talked about in this context. Um, but the backstory to all of this is why does William decide he has a claim to the English throne? I mean, he's not claiming he has a throne, a claim to the, you know, Danish throne, to the German throne, to the Hungarian throne. England's, yes, marginally closer, but it's not self-evident that you do this. It's not something you just do as a, a kind of French duke or count. You don't just say, oh, I deserve to be king of that neighboring kingdom. Um, in his specific case, it's because there's been this historic connection founded in the very early 11th century between Normandy and England. And this goes back to the kind of Viking attacks we were talking about. This is earlier. This is a moment in which England is sustaining very heavy Viking attacks under the reign of King Ethelred the Unready, famously ineffectual. Whether or not he deserves that reputation is a different matter, but he's facing severe Viking attacks. And one of his problems is that the Normans, who've only been settled in Normandy about 90 years, are sometimes offering safe harbor to Viking groups because some of the Normans are still indeed speaking Old Norse. Most probably not anymore, but some clearly still do. There's still a sense of a kind of old alliance and a cultural affinity. And so this is a problem if you're Ethelred, if you're an English monarch facing Viking attacks. You don't want them finding safe harbor directly across the English Channel from you. The English Channel isn't very wide. It doesn't provide much of a buffer. And so what he does is he decides to seek a marriage alliance with Normandy. And this is a complete novelty. So it's been oh well over a century since an English king has married 
a foreign princess. It's not normally something they do in the Anglo-Saxon period. They normally marry uh, leading women amongst their own uh, aristocracy and use that to kind of forge alliances with major magnates. But instead, he seeks this foreign alliance and marries Emma, uh, uh, the um, uh, 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 who is from the Norman ducal family, later to be royal family. And so we now have a Norman queen in England. She goes on to have two sons, um, uh, Edward and Alfred, with Ethelred. And Ethelred's reign then is kind of capped off to make things very, very simply with, uh, simplify things massively, but with further Viking attacks and eventually a Viking invasion and a successful conquest of England by Canute. And what then happens is that Canute is a conqueror who needs to justify his claim to the English throne, justify his position. William claimed, you know, he used the brush to sweep England clean and he was the natural heir to Edward the Confessor and his predecessor was a usurper. What Canute decides to do is to align himself subtly with the previous regime by marrying Emma. Um, and how much pressure Emma's under in terms of this is very hard to reconstruct. Um, and it must have been quite a difficult decision for her because what's happened in terms of this with the upheaval of invasion, she's sent her two sons with King Ethelred, who are potential heirs to the English throne, Edward and Alfred. They're both good English names, not Norman names. She's sent them over to Normandy to her relatives, to the Dukes, for safekeeping. She stayed behind, probably for her own political interests and to try to uh, uh, get a sense for what's going on here. We, again, don't know all of the details of the hows and whys. But once Canute's there, Canute is very, very interested in marrying her. And for him, this has potentially huge advantages. She's the widow of the previous king, so he can kind of claim that my kingship comes through her as queen, if you will. And certainly it provides at least a veneer of continuity with the previous regime. She provides contacts with the local aristocracy. So although she may be Norman, she's now lived in England uh, for would be 14 years, certainly 15 by the time they're marrying. So she's well integrated into the local scene there. But above all else, Canute, as somebody who's conquered England outright, his greatest threat are heirs of the previous monarch, are the rival dynasty, if you will. And of course, two of those, two of the most prominent of those who might threaten him, particularly in future years, they're still um, quite young at the time. They're, they're most, in terms of Edward the Elder, is at most in his teens, but is probably just a bit younger than that. Um, but within about five years' time, they're potentially a very, very real threat to him, and they're just over the channel again in Normandy. And again, you don't really want enemies in Normandy if you're in England. The best way to defuse all of this, of course, is to marry Emma, because if you can bring her on side, and particularly if you can have a son and heir with her, suddenly she has conflicted loyalties here. She's no longer interested in fomenting discord. She's not going to just go into exile in Normandy herself, which she might otherwise do, plan an invasion that might otherwise be successful. And so that's clearly Canute's strategy. For Emma, it must, one can only imagine, have been an agonizing choice. Kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, kind of a, might be cliched, but in a modern sense, career over children or something like that, may even be survival over children. Um, but certainly she decides to go in her lot with him and ends up becoming, though, hugely influential because of this. She was already quite influential under Ethelred, but because she's central to Canute's claim to England, because Canute in later years also spends significant time in Denmark and elsewhere because he becomes, you know, a ruler of what someone's called a North Sea Empire, having Denmark, Norway, parts of Sweden. Um, so he's in, not infrequently an absentee monarch. 
this means that she is one of the visible faces of authority. And so she's probably under Canute, the most powerful queen England's seen yet, and probably sees for quite some time to come. So yeah, she really, I think, frames the entire epoch uh, in terms of this. Her sons from her first husband, Edward and Alfred, never forgive her quite clearly. Uh, and what happens in the longer term is Edward eventually does come back to the English throne, and one of his first actions is to strip her of her wealth. There, there's clearly no happy families then. And he's now grown up in Normandy, but it's because of Emma. He's grown up in Normandy at the Norman Ducal Court. He knows William the Conqueror personally. They are distant relatives through Emma. They're both descendants of the Norman Ducal line. So all of this is suddenly brought together to dynasties and to polities that might otherwise have just ped, you know, tread parallel paths. One might have thought of a place like um, uh, Flanders, for example, that is, has historically been in close contact with England politically, trade and otherwise, long before Normandy. But there's never any claim to the throne from the Counts of Flanders or vice versa. Uh, it never ends up creating that kind of political consolation. The fact that it does is very much largely down to Emma uh, and her influence over subsequent events. We have a few more minutes on the Leaders and Legends podcast with Professor Levi Roach, wrote the book, Empires of the Normans. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. That's a question that I thought of as I was reading your book and seeing, you know, the term Normandy and all that over and over. Was Normandy in any way sort of, I'm going to overstate this, so please correct me sort of like forgotten or not really part of the historical consciousness or public consciousness. And then June 6th, 1944 happens and the invasion of Normandy by the allies. Did that in any way sort of rekindle people's interest in Normans and Normandy's history? That's a very good question. I had not thought of in those terms. I think it may have something to do with it the greater emphasis on the Normans that you see in English uh, and British historiography in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where there's a very strong emphasis on, on the Norman impact uh, on England. So no, I think you, you may well be right that there's something to that. Certainly there is an awareness that's never lost in England. And it's always hard for outsiders, which even, you know, which I was when I first moved here, to sometimes appreciate this, but just how important 1066 is in the English psyche. It's remembered as the last successful invasion of England. Of course, glorious revolution is not necessarily true, but that's the way, you know, it, it, this is an island nation, and it's, that really is a formative uh, moment for British identity in a kind of way that the War of Independence or Civil War are in the US. So I think that would be your kind of equivalent. It's essential to myth-making Famously, in uh, the rather scurrilous take on British history, 1066 and all that. I was just going to mention yeah, that. <laughs> this was the one date, you know, in British history. Um, and so it is something that, you know, children in schools here will all at some point study the Norman conquest. You know, normally when they're fairly young, but it is kind of one of those things uh, that that really is quite iconic. Something that's ever completely lost, but it certainly goes up and down in terms of interest. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write a popular book on the Normans is that most of popular history at present is focusing on the Anglo-Saxons, actually, in England. And Anglo-Saxons are great, and they're hugely important for England's history. But I think it, it overlooks the story of the Normans that actually have a much, much wider impact. And, uh, and I think these things do shift partly just by flavor, generation to generation, new histories need to be, you know, outed. We, we don't just want to repeat the same stuff time and again. 
But I expect you're right that there was a kind of a moment and a also a political trajectory in the 60s, 70s, 80s that we're seeing Britain become more and more closely aligned with mainland Europe. Um, and right now, at least uh, in the more in, in recent years, Britain's been on a rather different trajectory. And I do sometimes wonder how much of bigging up the Anglo-Saxons and looking to what might be seen as a more indigenous tradition, uh, a, a more native tradition, uh, is being offered as an antidote to something that otherwise sounds suspiciously French, suspiciously European. <laughs> um, but, but I may be overreading it. I say a lot of it, a lot of it's down to other things and what's been written recently. But certainly, I think there's a little bit of a danger that although 1066 gets a lot of outing, the Normans in general, and awareness that the Normans are in places like southern Italy, or, or in Spain, or in Wales, Ireland, Scotland, it's the story of all of Britain and Ireland, not just England. Those bits of the stories easily get lost off. You know, we, we never lose Hastings, but we can easily lose a lot of the rest around it, which is just as interesting. I love reading about Anglo-Saxon history, but to be candid, the names are so awful. It just, I, I lose I lose track of what I'm reading because I'm trying to figure out how to say these male and female names, which are uh, devoid of, of vowels. Well, and... The reason why you know a few Anglo-Saxon names, and you wouldn't necessarily think of them as such, but is because they're the few names that make the leap across the conquest. Edward, Alfred are the names that you're comfortable with. Why are those the names you're comfortable with? Because William the Conqueror is claiming descent from Edward, because later on, his own descendants happily name their children Edward because Edward is being culted as a saint. It's actually a direct trajectory there that there's a William's own justification for conquest is partially why only some of those names make make the leap. Is the name that makes its leap from being Anglo-Saxon. It's, and as an Anglo-Saxon name, it's actually Aadwear, um, and it, it, which sounds just as outlandish to you as Aadgar or Aadwear, <laughs> um, but then becomes simplified and continues in our modern lexicon and is simply your, you know, your friend Ed. I want to ask you about one other person, and then we'll end the podcast with the same five question we ask all of our guests. And the last person I want to mention is the Stuper Mundy, Frederick II. He takes up a big chunk of the, of the last part of your book. Why did you decide to make him and his activities in Italy and Germany so prominent? I want to use Frederick and to end on Frederick because he's part of the story that doesn't normally get told at all, even in older tellings of the Normans, Britain in the 70s and 80s. Um, and that's because I think he's felt to be too German, not really part of the story and so on. But he's a really fascinating case because he is of kind of joint descent. He's half through his mother's side from the Italian Norman line. And through his father's line, he's a descendant of uh, uh, the Stauffer rulers of Germany, Frederick Barbarossa. Frederick Barbarossa is his grandfather. Um, but because he's known as Frederick uh, and often treated as a kind of German monarch, the traditional kind of history on him sees him as being very, very German. But actually, he grows up in Sicily, speaks Sicilian as his first language, is a direct heir to those traditions that the Normans founded there. And the way he behaves when he rules Germany actually bears a significant imprint of this. And so it's a way of noting also how the Norman influence isn't always just by conquest. It can also be through kind of dynastic accident. And that the Norman story, therefore, does in some forms continue on, even when, as it is in the case of someone like Frederick, 
the person no longer sees themselves actively as normal, is no longer francophone. Uh, the kinds of attitudes he has politically, the way he treats particularly famously his son when his son rebels against him, is not the way any traditional German monarch would have treated a son who rebelled against him. In Germany, everyone's rebelling all the time. It's kind of par for the course. In Italy, it's a big deal. Frederick Trace treats this like as a big deal. Yeah, in Germany, normally you kind of have a two strikes, you're out. So you're allowed to rebel once at least against your father. And indeed, you know, if you're a sensible son, you, you probably do so at some point. It's a way of angling for getting what you want. That, you know, it's a show of, show of um, uh, frustration. But Frederick, the moment his son shows any disobedience, treats him very much like the Italian Normans have treated rebels from day one, extremely harshly, cuts him out from the kingship, and the younger son monarch in his place. So I think Fred took the nice example um, of appreciating how these legacies continue to drum, trundle along, how the political entities created by the Normans uh, continue to have this life, even when they're not being sat upon by uh, monarchs who in the male line are not. Frederick is in the male line uh, a Stauffer, but actually, culturally speaking, he is very much the heir to Norman traditions. And so he's a nice bridge which then sees Norman influence go even north of the Alps into Germany and also provides a flavor for how um, southern Italy has evolved subsequently after those initial conquests, because the kingdom of Sicily continues to exist into the 19th century. It's, it's a Norman creation that is remarkably long lived. And I didn't know that until I read your book. I didn't know that that one kingdom, I mean, I knew the kingdom it was the kingdom of the two Sicilies or whatever lasted, was still around in the 19th century but i didn't know it was the i didn't know it was the same one it's a terrific it's a terrific book uh, we have reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests professor roach are you ready yes what was your first job my first job was working in the tea room of the university library in Cambridge, which I did um, between my first and second years of uh, undergraduate study. I want that job. Number two, what was your first concert? I'm honestly not sure I can remember. I know that's a terrible answer, but I genuinely don't know. I, I should emphasize, I grew up um, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and went to an international school, which is probably why I applied to university in the UK as well as the US and Canada. And so there you didn't really get to concerts. So you, you, you listen to the music, the same music you would otherwise, but you kind of bought all the CDs back in the CD era when you were back at home and then listened to them while, while you were living in East Africa. So Well, let's change it up. What was your last concert you went to? That's also a very good question. Again, I don't know. I, 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 as you may have gathered from this, I, I quite like listening to music, but I don't tend to go to con concerts. I think I think it's one of those things in my youth, and they've never got in. <laughs> Doubtless, a huge flaw of character. Uh, question number three: If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Just since we've been talking about earlier uh, today, I'd say Rob Bartlett's Making of Europe. I think it's one of the best books written about the Middle Ages, but probably one of the best history books I've read full stop in the sense that it tells a remarkable story, but is and a story that when you publish it was completely new, but it's also really grounded in materials and really makes you see things in a different way than you would have previously. I need to get that book. Number four, 
This is a tough one for historians. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Ooh, perhaps since we've been talking about the Normans today, I'd be blind to want to have witnessed the funeral of William the Conqueror, which famously is meant to be a comedy of errors that they're... they're, they're <laughs> I was going to say it was gross and ghastly. Um, <laughs> his body is meant to erupt. and I think it's fascinating to see how everybody else reacts. Because that's what we don't really know. The, the, the later narratives try to kind of dress it up all right. But, you know, what did they look? Did they look aghast? Did they look scared? Did they think it was funny? Was it a bit of a mix of all of those things? That that That's the kind of question that's really hard to ever know because anybody who ever writes an account of those events is going to be doing so from a very party-free perspective. You wrote it in your book. You called it his corpulent corpse, which made me laugh out loud. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? A dinner with anyone today. Hmm. Very good question. And not something I think I've ever thought of before. Genuinely don't know. Queen Elizabeth II? Why not? Why not? <laughs> or At her son, I think. Her, her son, though, was it the Earl of Wessex? He's the historian in the family, I think, right? Edward? Prince Edward? Edward yes, I think he's the one who's more, more, more into, more into the, the, the history there. Although I but, guess I suppose in his I, own I have way, met him passing Charles, who actually seemed far more charismatic than you're told. But of course, you know, I think these people get very good at shaking people's hands and making them seem nice. But he came across very nicely. So, I guess in some ways, Prince Andrew would be his own particular. Topic. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe not a maybe not a Pizza Express with Prince Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Professor Levi Roach. He has written a terrific book about the Normans. I have to say, I've I've read a lot about this time period. I put your book down thinking, well, there's at least 10, 15, 20 things I had never read before, especially about the Kingdom of Sicily uh, surviving to the 19th century. His book is called Empires of the Normans. We'll put a link to it when we post this on social media. Uh, Dr. Roach, thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.